have mercy, look at how the time goes. And welcome everybody to this episode Seems of the Coming I'm Home so Podcast with John Allen. Today I'm speaking with Miss Maureen Keating. Hi, Maureen. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Yeah, a little busy, a little, uh, little, uh, yeah, a little high uh, heart rate today, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I have to ask you. Um, now I've spoken with you uh, for a few minutes now. You know we were doing our sound check and everything before the episode, and I spoke with you on the telephone about a week ago. Um, you are you're currently living in my home state of Ohio, in the same area, roughly where I grew up. Yeah. Have you are are you born and raised in that area of Ohio? Actually, I was born in Cleveland. Okay. Right, Parma. Yeah. Yeah. When I went to Kent State, and but, so I've been in this area for quite some time, except for maybe two, two and a half years when I lived out of state. And where did you live yep. when you were out of state? Um, New Mexico. New in Mexico. Albuquerque. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, the reason I ask you if you were born and raised there is because one thing that I've noticed, and this has nothing to do with the subject matter that we're going to talk about, but this is something I've been thinking about since I first spoke to you on the phone. Uh, Since I've been gone, I've been in Norway for almost 20 years, and I, since then, I have noticed that we have a distinct accent in our area of Ohio. It's almost a touch of a southern west virginia kentucky type of thing oh has anyone ever told you that before um people have told me i've had some type of accent and they usually thought it was a little southern but i was raised by a mom with a very thick irish brogue so i don't know if it's a combination (laughs) of a little Southern and an Irish brogue. You know what? That's a, that's an interesting combination. Uh-huh. Well, you know, it could be the Irish brogue that's coming through, but I heard a distinct Southern thing in your voice. And I do know I had a lot of classmates who had parents who were from the hills of Kentucky or West Virginia, and they brought that Southern accent, of course, oh, with really? them. Uh-huh. Yeah. But anyway, you have a beautiful accent. It reminds me of home. You are the embodiment of my homesickness. <laughs> now, you have a rather um, eclectic background in the mental health and uh, addiction services uh, field. Can you talk mm-hmm. about can you talk about your career? Because it's amazing. Well, actually, my career um, started in college and um, I was one of those college students that needed to be more active than sitting in the classroom. Mm. So I joined a program that was put out through the Peace Corps. It was a a student program uh, called the University Year for Action. So I started working in the field as part of my coursework. So I started when I was like 20 at Kent State, and then I did get my degree in sociology. Then I worked in corrections for a while. Um, I went back, um, I came back to Ohio, worked in employment and training and corrections, and then I got my master's degree in mental health counseling, and I had always wanted to work in addiction and mental health counseling. So I also did receive my licensure in mental health and a licensure in addiction counseling. That is, so a, the- that is a heck of a resume there. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of jumping around for a while, John. But then I found my niche, which was basically women's programming in um, addiction. Um, what is very interesting to me is that there is a, from my understanding, it's a relatively new, um, find when it comes to the treatment of addiction. And that find is that, uh, men and women respond differently Mm -hmm. to treatment. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's a rather fascinating thing, I think. Okay. And, um, basically what happened is the addiction field is 
really not that old. We're kind of a new field when you really come down to it. Um, now, there, AA has been in existence for, um, I'm thinking it's almost 80 years. Yeah. Uh, AA is not addiction treatment. It was a 12-step program that was a support program where uh, one addict helped another addict. But in terms of the science of the field and the treatment component, what we have found out through the years is that men and women um, respond to treatment differently, and many of the models that were originally designed for treatment were based on um, men. And a lot of that came out of many of the men were more visible as addicts. And then now, now when you mean, excuse me, when you say visible, what do you what do you mean by that? I guess what I would mean is that um, alcoholism was, well, it still is part of our culture, and it's part of um, addiction, a big part of addiction. Yes. And for many years, you would see the male addict. Um, the male um, alcoholic, and a lot of people do not consider alcohol a drug, but it is. Absolutely, and it's it a is. Very dangerous drug, and I think that sometimes we hear heroin, and we're like, "Oh, this is the worst drug on the planet." Well, heroin is definitely not a great drug to be addicted to, but alcohol has its whole set of issues and problems and can be very, very dangerous. But what had happened is, well, when we saw people in addiction, it was often men. So men were more represented because before um, some of the social changes where women started getting into the workplace and being more visible, a lot of their addiction was hidden. They, they used in their households, they weren't out and they weren't losing jobs because of their addictions, where the men were more visible. And so then what happened is we started doing models for treatment, and what we were finding out is that men did very well in certain types of models, and our women would come in and they do great if they could even come in, many of them would um, forego any type of treatment because they had children. And who's going to uh. watch them? Um, they were fearful that if they lost sometimes their very low-paying job to take time off to go to treatment, there would be no way to support their families. Um, Unfortunately, when the male is an addict and the woman is not, the woman takes care of the man and the children. But when the woman's an addict, very often the males don't want a whole lot to do with it unless she can provide care for the children and keep the house clean, at which point, you know, you might yeah. stay with her. From what but I've seen... Well, I was going to say, I'm sorry, from what I've seen up through the years in my experiences is that when the father is the addict, the children are protected by the mother, but the mother yeah. is an addict and the children are taken from the home. Sometimes, yes. More, well, or yeah. more, more, often, more often than if the father is the addict. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. There seems to be a certain stigma that women get, uh, that men don't get when they're addicts. Uh, I remember reading about, um, I don't remember the exact dates, but in the, in the 50s and into the early 60s, uh, very often women, so-called housewives of the time, would be prescribed uh, certain types of amphetamines. To yep. be able to make it through through the day, you know, and of course they were becoming addicted to that, but then that was seen as, you know, these hysterical women or these weak women who, you know, they faint or they get the vapors and they fall out. Well, they were actually suffering from addiction from Absolutely. these amphetamines, but there was this stigma again, once again, this stigma that they couldn't, it, it was never looked at as an addiction. So we're talking mm -hmm. about decades where women suffered much more than men did simply because their problems from these drugs was not looked at as, a, as an addiction at all. 
And you're absolutely right. I mean, that was a, a huge issue. Um, actually, the stigma is still there for any kind of addiction, even though we're working towards, um, we're trying to change the um, paradigm in the language yeah. and look at the reality that this is a brain disease. It's it's psycho, it's biopsychosocial in my world. I mean, I believe it's a very holistic type of disease but it affects the brain and there's some things that happen to the brain over time that make it really difficult for people to maintain sobriety we're starting to understand those things but then we also live in a culture where women are caretakers and the women that are the highest um that i think that get the most stigmatized the most stigma are pregnant women because mothers would never use drugs. Mothers should never do this. So if you, and I work with addicted pregnant women, women of childbearing age and women who have given birth to babies that have been dependent on substances and um, the stigma in those women it's unbelievable because they're just looked at as bad, evil people that don't care enough about their children. And, and that is not true. Yeah. So, so, so what do we say to those people who, you know, when a uh, when an educated person, uh, one who is educated within the field of addiction, uh, as you are, and you tell people this is a disease, it's a illness uh, uh, of the brain. And then you get the lay person who says, ah, that's a bunch of baloney. It's a question of strength or weakness. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a character flaw or they're just weak or they made a choice. What do you say to those people? How, well, do, how do you strengthen, how do you strengthen your side of the, of the argument? How do you lay your facts out for someone like that? Okay. Well, the first thing that I might do is um, talk about how the brain changes when you're using substances. But I also talk about trauma it, because um, one of the things that we uncovered from looking at the differences in how men and women approach treatment and how they healed better, we uncovered the fact that women heal in community. And men do well with the sponsor and with the 12 steps, but women need community. They need to be part of relationship in many cases to really heal from these issues. And one of the things that we've uncovered in the last several years, I'm going to say it goes back probably 30 plus years, um, is a whole issue of trauma. Many women have trauma in their backgrounds. And what we're understanding now through neuroscience is that trauma changes people's brains. It's been and proven. It it's, yeah, it's been proven that the, yeah. uh, a single slap upside the head from your mom or dad, there is a neurological response to that. Right. And there's right. nothing there's nothing positive about that response. So then you can imagine a child who is beaten regularly or, or <laughs> physically disciplined regularly. There will be a stamp that is put on the psyche and on the the, the brain uh, of that child. Am I am I am right. I thinking correctly here? Well, you're right on target there. There's a whole study. It's called the Adverse Childhood um, Experiences. It's the ACE studies. And they actually looked at people with early childhood trauma. And some of the trauma that um, really changes the brain is neglect. Even though like people have been um, physically injured or abused that is a brain changer but it's also a message that somebody cared enough about me to even hit me it's uh -huh. just children totally ignored and that are not um, bonded with people that get neglected your failure to thrive children that never got their needs <laughs> met or they have been exposed to violence um, because we know that um, babies respond to their environments when they're in utero. Once they can start hearing and picking things up, and if mom's in a, a violent situation, um, that baby is going to respond. And then mom has all kinds of stress hormones and um, 
uh, a lot of the like adrenaline. Sure, and sure. When the mother releases those <laughs> hormones, that they're they're yes. being fed, if you will, to to the baby. The baby. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So. so then, so on the converse of that, uh, all of the singing that I did to my wife's big belly was nothing but a bonus for my children then. It was a huge <laughs> bonus for your children. You're not going to appreciate it until they get in that first neuroscience class. But when they get there, they're like, wow, wait a minute. Yeah, this is cool stuff. But, you know, looking at the neuroscience, the other piece that we are aware of through neuroscience is that substances change the brain and many of the substances work on the systems in the brain and most of them work on the dopamine receptors and that's the feel-good hormones so if you start doing things that change the way that your brain even works yes you're gonna have switch that almost goes off and some people are kind of born with the switch so they go their switch goes off really early but other people they might use substances for many years and then they just use a substance that made that switch go off and they're off and running so one of the examples that i like to tell people is let's uh, what what happens to the brain is let's imagine john that you um are in a very dry area like a desert area okay and i am going to take away your water so you have no water uh-huh. So then I'm going to stand at the end of a road, maybe after you've been deprived of water for several hours or maybe a couple of days, and I have a giant, giant glass of cold water, okay? Oh, boy. So you're, you are parched. You just want that water more than you want anything in the world. Yeah. With addiction that's what happens to the brain when they when it changes it and they start to crave and want drugs okay so now what i'm gonna do john i'm gonna say to you you know what if you want this water you're gonna have to give me your house your kids basically your life okay but if you want this water is that a good agreement and you know what because we have that survival thing yes. going on yes. that's in our really low levels of our brain, how many people are going to turn down that water? Exactly. So once I give you that water, what are you going to do to me? I'm probably going to thank you. <laughs> yeah, but but I'm not taking your kids and your house and your oh, yeah, job. Now you're, taking, now you're taking my house and kids and job, yeah. So, so what are you going to do to me? Now I gave you the water. Well, I'm probably going to begin to negotiate to get all of those things back. Yeah. You bet you will. And yeah. you'll probably do anything that you can Absolutely. to get those things back, right? Yeah, yeah. Because they're important to me. Yep. And that's addiction. So that's addiction. And I think that that is a great way because I I hear uh, from a lot of people. There there are people out there who understand addiction because it's touched them. Someone in their family, someone in their life has been or is an addict and they can understand these things. But for people who have never seen addiction up close and personal like that, a lot of them are very quick to say it is just a, uh, a question of strength uh, or weakness, of mm-hmm. willpower or a lack of discipline. And, right. and we, we need this information that you're sharing here. This is why I wanted to do this podcast with you, because I believe that this information needs to get out there. It's getting out there. But, it is. But, but, you know, and this is not a mental health podcast, but I'm glad, I'm happy to surprise my listeners by putting this kind, type of content out there. People need to hear this, especially with this, this, this enormous problem that we're having, especially with opiates back home. It's, 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 it's crazy. It's, um, it's unprecedented. But it's always existed. 
except it existed, it, it was more prevalent or noticeable, maybe not necessarily prevalent, because addiction crosses all races, all classes. It's not, it does not discriminate. I but guess I'm, also, yeah. Well, I was going to say a lot of times what we see as the addict is a skid row person or the, um, the junk. Or we have like lots of nice names for these folks too. Yeah. Or they live under the bridge, or they're they're using crack cocaine. Yeah, and um, that's our definition and what we see. But yeah. there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And until the um, opiate epidemic, it when people in different levels of society or like people that have privilege could hide addiction yeah. because they could go to a private yes. Um, rehab and they sure. could have everybody cover it up yeah. and it was like but once it really moved into the population now it's hitting people and it hits their families and their reputations and their pocketbooks and now all of a sudden something that existed for a very long time becomes a prominent issue yeah and let me, I actually want to take back what I said because this situation is not uh uh, this isn't the first time. This it, this really isn't nothing new, but it no. uh, so it's not unprecedented. But it's maybe unprecedented in its attention that it is getting from yeah. a certain from a certain demographic. Um, I would say absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm glad the attention's there because then it draws the attention sure. to the field. I mean, it's a it's about time it was it. It was drawn to the field. You're, you're so. not a uh, you're not a statistician, but do you know anything about the numbers? How many people in the Northeast Ohio area are are suffering from addiction? Well, just to give us just to paint a picture of how much uh, how much attention it's been getting and how much worse it's getting. Well, I think that you now. I don't have the the most recent. St- data off the top of my head, but I can tell you that traditionally 10% of the population is has addiction issues with substances, okay? Now, there's many other addictions. I mean, we could do podcasts forever on sure. gambling. Absolutely. Um, workaholism, which is an accepted addiction. Yeah, yeah. And, um, like folks that have addiction to adrenaline from sports, those are all addictive behaviors, but they're, some of them are very acceptable. And like, uh, if you work your, yourself, like work hours and hours, your children don't get to see you, but you're doing an addictive process too. You know I, what I mean? I so, think if people, if people engage in some serious introspection, I think mm-hmm. you can find the negative effects of any type of addiction because you're, you're very, very right. A lot of people think sometimes it's expected that uh, that, uh, that 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 parents, um, whether it's a mother or a father, should be a workaholic. You're supposed to get out there and work and work and work, and that is what you're supposed to. Do. But that is something that can turn into an addictive behavior, and there's some negative. There's some side effects to that. Exactly, and the same thing happens like with our poor soldiers that are coming back from war. Some of our soldiers get addicted to the adrenaline yes. of being on the edge. And when they come back here, it's very difficult for them to adjust to living. And then they, if they have PTSD and addiction issues, it makes it even more difficult. Well, but they will literally get addicted to the adrenaline rush of disarming an IED. That is definitely a thing. Did you ever see the movie, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, it was a war movie about Iraq, and there was a, it was a woman director, and the, the soldier in that movie was so addicted to the adrenaline that he couldn't function outside of the service. You know, I, I truly uh, understand that situation. I, uh, in conversations with my wife up through, up through the years, uh, you know, I, I wonder if I, to a certain degree, was addicted to adrenaline. Coming here to Norway, uh, after being a police officer, I worked in, in gangs and narcotics, and then I came from that 
to this here in, in, in Norway, a very pastoral setting, a very quiet thing with no adrenaline. And it happened literally overnight. I worked up until like a day or two before I actually moved here. And then all of a sudden there was nothing, no, yeah, nothing. And it was a difficult time. I, I, I'll be the first to admit it. It was a very difficult time for the first couple of years, especially um, after, after, after moving here to Norway. So that, addi- that, that addiction to adrenaline, that is a thing, people. For my listeners out there, that is a thing. And, and it is something that needs to be dealt with in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting that you say that, John, because I think that people go through almost the detox when they're used to a certain amount of activity and energy. Because when you think about it, your brain has lots of, like, endorphins and things going and when you pull that away and see that's what happens with the chemicals if you think about um the the chemical dopamine um if you are going to have a really good meal you're going to shoot your dopamine up a little bit and then if somebody has sex they have their dopamine goes up because you want these pleasurable activities to survive yes you know you have to eat you have to keep the species going etc but when you put a substance in your body like something like methamphetamine that's going to shoot that dopamine up almost 10,000 times higher yeah. than food. And, and I then would, if heroin, the same thing happens, you know? So when they so get that artificial... Uh, I'm hearing a bit of an echo. Maybe you can turn the sound turn the sound down on your phone. Okay. Is there that better? Is let's, that better? Let's try that. Now I lost the video of you, but that's okay. If you can pull okay. the video up, bring bring that back. No, but okay. what what I was going to say is when an addict or a drug abuser time after time gets that artificial dopamine kick, that artificial yeah. rush, uh, I would imagine then that it deadens or totally wipes out the body's natural dopamine response. And that becomes a large part of the withdrawal, as we as we say. Am I right? No, Yes, it actually changes the dopamine response because of the way it works in the brain chemistry. But the other thing that there's some theories out there now that some of the people that are going to be more prone to addiction may not have enough dopamine in the beginning. And like their own brain making it. So when they get it artificially, it's like heaven to them. So, so, so so if I'm someone who does not have enough dopamine naturally, how can that be fixed with medication? What kind of medication, well, or can it be fixed? It can, uh, there can be things that they can do. That, that probably, I would send that to one of the docs to discuss that. Okay. But you can, you can start doing things. You can do some behavioral things to start improving your brain where you would... Um, train yourself to have really good moments because a lot of what happens it's it's not just medicine i mean there's no like magic pill here i'm going to no. give you in this means going to be better i mean there is mat that helps people that's medication assistant treatment for um opiate addiction where it will help people um reduce cravings so that they have time to allow their brain to heal and then they can learn coping mechanisms and they can learn to live again and find pleasure in regular things so it's a a process of sometimes some medication sometimes medication for mental health issues um, but it also has to work with some behavioral components and thought components. I see. Some relaxation components. And if people are highly traumatized, they need to know how to settle their central nervous system so that they can even learn the tools that they to begin to live. And I'm, I'm thinking for, you know, for a lot of afflictions or a lot of moments of stress, uh, people will be told, oh, just calm down. Well, some people don't know how to calm down. They're in a constant state of flight or f- fight or flight because of the trauma they've experienced. Right. 
And that's actually a nervous system, lower brain functioning issue that they don't have control over. So our goal is to teach them to pay attention to the very triggers that get them going and the little tiny changes that happen so that they can begin to utilize coping strategies before their internal system's off and running. So you have to you have to be very aware and a lot of the things that work with that are not like talk therapy. What works is teaching people yoga and breathing and yeah. sports or bilateral like drumming. That's what works with I, getting their nervous system calmed down. I always tell people that um you know, I'm I'm a competitive power lifter. I was on the US national team uh uh uh, up until a couple couple years ago, and I always tell people, sometimes half jokingly, uh, but but quite often, very seriously, that mm-hmm. my powerlifting, my training, for me is therapeutic. Absolutely. Um, it it's it's it, it it replaces that that magic little pill. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it replaces maybe that 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 therapy session where you where you sit down with some sort of a therapist and talk it out uh i talk it out with the kilos on the bar and the repetitions in the repetitions that i do um but that but that that can be seen as kind of extreme you know competitive power lifter and i lift a lot of weight uh what are but there's other strategies that people can use when it comes to physical activity uh it's been studied uh maybe you know about this that something as simple as taking a walk in nature absolutely it does sing- yeah no, i'm sorry go ahead it's left right left you want something that you're gonna have both sides of your body moving yes but laterally just yeah by Movement is uh, fabulous. Yeah, the simple movement of taking a walk in the out in the woods somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely right. Now, can I ask you a question? Sure, guys? ask away. Have you ever had to take a break from lifting and noticed how you felt when you were on that break? Um, I I'm I'm very cerebral with my training. Um, you know, you have some guys and and ladies who are meatheads, and they just go in there and they beat themselves up, and there's no rhyme or reason, no planning, no real method. My my mm-hmm. my training is very much thought out, and part of my training is me incorporating rest periods. Okay, and those so rest you, so, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and those rest periods can be times where I'm lifting less weight or less okay. frequency or there can there can be a period where I don't lift at all um, mm-hmm. and I know my body so well uh, and I understand the benefits of those breaks for my physical well-being that <laughs> when I program one week or 10 days of no training I love it it's I wel- okay. I welcome it and I always find myself during that week or 10 days of less training, less physical activity, that's when I will change focus and put a little more thought, a little more effort, a little more time into something like my writing or my music. So you're actually using another alternative way to kind of express yourself. So there's an outlet regardless of which outlet. And see, I think that's one of the keys for a lot of our folks is that they need to understand themselves, understand how things work with their bodies, um, and have the kind of skill base. Actually, what you're talking about is perfect treatment for people that are trying to recover from addiction. And and again, uh, there there is there is there is rhyme and reason with me doing this podcast episode and and I don't like to talk, well, I do like to talk about myself who doesn't, but I try not to talk so much about myself in my podcast episodes. I'm more interested in hearing what my guest has to say, but I think that aspect of my life and how I use my training or my writing or my music or my stand-up comedy, those are the things that uh, I put into that therapeutic backpack. And whenever I need it, I can pull it out. 
Um, uh, I had an operation last May on my shoulder where I was down for the count and I couldn't train, but then I put my time into developing my, my, my up comedy routine or to writing, writing some more music and things like that. I have to be, and, and, and I, I, Maybe there's a little dark underside to all this, but I, I, I can say this. I feel that I always have to be expressing myself in an artistic way. I have to. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, actually, that's a lot of the, um, the neuroscience and the research that's coming out is that many people that develop addictions or are more prone and this is anecdotal okay sure. i can't i can't give you the research on this except for that i've been in this field for many many years and i've seen this so many times but so many of my um, folks that i work with are highly artistic they're highly inventive they're um they play music they they have that right brain kind of creative edge. They're highly sensitive human beings, and if they do not have a healthy outlet, that's when they get more prone to. And there's and and there's that yeah. dark underside to all of that that I I. I think of what happened with my son um, passing away from a heroin overdose in November of 2019. I think of some of the older people in my family from before who had um, problems with drinking. My grandmother's brothers, for example, <laughs> some drinking issues and things like that. Now, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I've never done any drugs. Um never drank until I met my wife. That's her fault. <laughs> uh, but, but I, actually I was, I was 30, uh, I was 32 years old when my wife and I married. And that's the first time I had alcohol mm -hmm. and the last time I haven't drank anything since. Um, but <clears throat> I, there's this thing where I fear, maybe this is a good thing because it keeps me away from it, but I fear alcohol and drugs because of what I see in the family. And I don't want to embarrass anybody in the family. There's no one uh, living in my family that I know of that has any addiction problems. Uh, but again, uh, my son died of a heroin overdose and I, I have very clear memories of uh, my old, the older men my, in my grandma's uh, generation, her brothers who had problems with alcohol. Right. So, so yeah. that's, that's in the back of my mind. It's this little, it's, it's just this little dark cloud. It hasn't come over my head. It hasn't rained on me, but I see that dark cloud there and it guides my actions. Um, sure. Yeah. And a lot of our families, um, I know, well, I, I have an Irish heritage, and they've made drunk jokes about my heritage forever. Mm -hmm. And when you look at um, our heritages, we come from cultures that there's cultural trauma. Yeah. And when you look at the trauma connection to substances, you can see this whole cultural trauma thing, because if you look at um, which... Um, groups of people tend to be more prone. They're often people who come from those cultures of trauma. Yeah. And so, and I'm not saying that everyone that's traumatized uses, because there's many people that will do exactly as you did. I actually have a cousin over in Ireland who joined a group when he was in college, and they were called the Pioneers because there's so much alcoholism in the country that he just took a vow never to pick up a drink, and he never did. And um, I've got some cousins that are very functional, but they have issues. Yeah. And then we've got a few of the really tough ones that didn't do so well. But I think that... Um, some people can watch and see and learn from other people. And then there's always those folks that I just have to try this for myself. And that's what I mean, that's it's like, where's no, I was going to say, and I never want to judge anyone, but I truly cannot no. understand with the knowledge that we have about drugs 
and alcohol mm-hmm. and, and what it can do, uh, you know, the destruction that it can bring that whole thing where people have that attitude where, let me try this and see what it will do. That, that, that's so frightening to me. And it's very hard for me to understand why people can't, uh, uh, see those, those things, you know, drugs and alcohol for what they are. And they are, they are keys that open doors mm-hmm. and you don't know what's on the other side. You just have to get over there and see. And if you see something right. wrong, then the consequences are quite destructive, mm-hmm. but people still want to try it. I, you know, you, you have that 16 year old kid. He's never, he or she has never, uh, uh, tried, tried cocaine before, but they want to see what it's about. So they try it. I just don't, I've never well, understood they, that thought process. Sometimes they do because that's, you know, they're just more, um, they have a daredevil internal kind of soul. And other times they do it because the one club that you don't have to be good at much of anything to be in in school is the druggy club. That's you true. You get to belong. That's you true. can belong no matter. You don't have to have a special talent. You don't have to be good at sports. But then you also see, you know, I guess our culture, when you think about sports and high school and college, college sports, and you think about the games and you think about the drunken brawls and the tailgate parties. So what happens is some people are very lucky and they can go through that period of time and then their brain doesn't change dramatically. They grow up and they move out of it. But then there's that percentage that's probably somewhere around 10% that um, end up on the dark side of it. That's so, that's such a frightening number. 10%. If you're, if you're in a room with 10 random people, one of them Mm -hmm. is probably addicted to something. Yeah. Well, and it's higher again, like I, what I was saying, when you're talking about cultures of pain, if you look at the cultural, piece um it goes up in different cultures and sometimes it's a matter of how the culture managed addiction and drinking and other times there's literally brain things that that once that it gets there it's like you're off and running you know so it's it's kind of a so scary it is it's it's very scary and it's scary for children and parents that have had that have seen the addiction and then they fear what is going to happen to my children and i think that um what we're starting to uncover is that a parent who's highly attentive to the pregnancy in that first year of life actually sets a foundation that's pretty incredible for kids. Um, that's when the baby's brains are developing and their nervous systems are developing really fast. And if you can create a lot of peace and um, kind of engagement with the children, their brains develop like really good. You yeah. know, they get these cool brains you know (laughs) but if you're not engaging and you're not doing what you need to do that's one of the things that i do like about some of the european countries is that they allow parents to stay with those children until they're a year old well it it varies wildly from from country to country but i do know that here (laughs) in norway we have probably the best uh, system set up for, for, for parents and children. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, our daughter, uh, she was born in two, uh, 2005. I was able to spend, I think it was nine months, maybe a little bit over nine months uh, away from my job, at home, mm-hmm. still getting paid. I think I was getting paid 80, 87.5% of my salary, <laughs> and my job was there waiting for me after those nine months. And I stayed home with yeah. our daughter. Exactly. And then when we had our son, my wife stayed home with him. I don't think she stayed home that maybe, maybe it was like six months or something like that. But I was home for around nine months with our daughter. And I, I, there has to be a benefit to that. It has, it has to put a little bit more security, um, uh, around the child. It has to, it has to speed up and strengthen the development, uh, in, mm-hmm. in their, in their brains neurologically, uh, emotion, emotionally as well. There has to be benefits well, to that. that. 
Yeah, because you pass on, when, when you create safety for a baby and you meet their needs, they don't have to look outside of themselves to find a way to fill themselves up. Exactly. Because you, the parent, offered that safe place for them to be. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that that's a real key. And as our societies changed, and when we lived in societies where we had nuclear families around and grandmas and aunties, every child had at least four or five adults that they could go to. And now, if you think about child care, you have five kids to one adult. So who's raising who these days? Well, I I can remember when uh, when I was growing up, uh, me and my brother and my sister, and we lived right next door to three of our cousins and then uh-huh. down the road and up the hill were three more cousins right. we had um we had uh, all four grandparents a block or two away several oh. aunts a couple of great aunts and all of a sudden there's this family of about 20 people Right. You know, 20, you know, 20 people, um, 20 adults rather. And, uh, about 9, 10, 11, 12 kids, everybody taking care of everybody. All of these eyes are on the children. There's no such thing as daycare. Daycare was, no. gra- was grandma's house, you know, exactly. and, and it's- we, and we have less and less of that today. And I think it shows in the children. And it does. And that's a setup. Yeah for some of these processes because if you talk to people with addiction problems they it's almost like they have holes in their soul some of them will even tell you that that i have this hole and i can't fill it up no matter what i do and so like treatment's a way to start repairing those by connections because the more human connection and the more support you have the better you are in healing those holes in your soul. That's why we talk about women in relationship. They don't do well without other women and support and um, community around them because they are relational creatures by nature. They were always the ones that were home nurturing, etc. I mean, not every single woman. I want. I don't want to get into the this woman did this, and you know what I'm saying. Sure. But sure. nature, they they're relational. They respond a certain way and um so they did not do well in treatment sometimes they would do great in treatment and then they left and they would relapse and we found out that we were never treating that early trauma and that's what was causing a lot of the problems so once you treat the early trauma now they have an ability to stay sober but many of them if you talk to them and you do um like you did an ACE survey and found out how many adverse childhood experiences they've had in their life, which would be things like um, coming from a divorced household, um, being humiliated, uh, being shamed, those kinds of things, not just once or twice and not getting hit once. I'm talking about more intense, um, repetitive experiences. Those particular women with the high scores on many of those experiences are the ones that we see in and out of residential treatment. They're the ones that have a hard time getting it and staying sober because the holes in their soul are so deep that it's it takes a long time to start building them up and helping them find ways to heal because the injury is so intense. So a residential treatment center, um, um, the, I would assume that the advantage to that, as opposed to just an, uh, like, like, a, like an outpatient thing where someone meets up for, for a meeting a couple times a week, mm-hmm. the, 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 um, the residential, uh, uh, solution plays to the woman's need to be in some sort of a group well it plays to that but it also does play to a safety component because they're removed they're removed from their destructive environment they are literally being cut off from their supply if you will uh and they're in a they're in a clean environment right 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 
Yeah, and then but they have a safe place to be. So if they have a nightmare, there's a person at the front desk that they can go to and talk to. And what an important um, job that is. Yeah, it really is. Actually, the brain, a lot of people do not realize this, but it takes a minimum of 90 days after a person stops using to just clear their brain. So, their so, brain. so people who then go into a rehab thing and they're, they call themselves finished after 30 days, that's, to put it bluntly, BS, I would, I would well, think. Well, it depends on the person, John. Okay, if yeah. They, if they had some skills and some support prior to entering that rehab and they leave with a sponsor and maybe a recovery coach and sober support and a good plan, they can do really, really well. But if they have major damage yeah. and they have mental health issues and many of them also have physical issues and some of them actually can their addictions because of serious injuries like they may have broken their back at a work site and then the pain because they were in chronic pain they started using and then their um, opiates didn't work anymore so they found heroin on the street because they couldn't get enough opiates so some of them come by it as a result of injury and pain and the inability to stop the chronic pain well you said so no i'm sorry go ahead go ahead I was just going to say what happens is each person has to be treated individually. And one of the things is when you have a very chronic case of addiction and your chronic case is um, complicated by mental health, maybe you have a lot of anxiety, depression, Um, bipolar is a common mental health illness that shows up with addiction. Uh, PTSD is huge. So if you have those kinds of things and then you have physical illness and then you come to a rehab center, 30 days, your brain is just starting to heal just in the very Well, you mentioned a lot of important things. You know, when you go into a treatment program, you have to go in. uh, First of all, you have to want to be there. You have to have the right attitude while you're there. You have to want to be there. Sometimes we can convince you it was a really good idea that you Uh, came. I see. But it helps. It helps if you want to be there. uh, But I would would think it's quite important to have a plan, to have some sort of follow-up plan, some sort of sponsorship, some sort of continuity um, well, you should have a plan for a minimum of five years. Actually, most of this is lifetime work, but um, it takes about two years to establish some pretty good sobriety and another three to five to really cement it in. And I think what we do is we have our managed care systems and people get seven days of treatment and like uh, you've been using for 25 years and you've had 16 other treatments. Now we gave you seven days, go get well. You know, it doesn't work that way. No, but it seems like it, it seems like the system, well, I don't want to say the system. I guess l- looking at it from a um, a judicial point of view, a lot of people, mm-hmm. they get caught with a certain amount of drugs and they go to drug court and then right. they get this mandated treatment. To me, that is so, um, they're just barely touching the surface, the judicial exactly. system, by, 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 by arresting uh, these addicts, these people, and then judging them to, you know, their, their, their conviction says they have to go to a, to a drug treatment that lasts, I don't know, a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think it's going to take to make the judicial system, the law enforcement system take this seriously? Because from my vantage point, they do not take it seriously. I don't think I'm wrong when I say that. I think it depends on where you live, John. Um, your county summit where I work in the Akron area, we have uh, some real champions for good service for addiction. We have people that have drug courts and champions. We actually have a recovering judge that's really amazing. Ah. But we have... I stand um, corrected. We have... Now we got I'm a little. Sorry. I'm sorry. I, just, I, lo- I lost my sound John? there. Hello. You there? 
Okay. Yeah, I lost yeah, my sound. Yeah. Go, go we ahead. We have a very we. Okay, we have one of the best systems around. They're still working on it though, because we still have people that don't get it totally, and they also we have people that think that because they're judicial that they can order people into treatment, which they can't. That's a treatment person's choice. But you know, they, I mean, you can order them to follow whatever the treatment recommendation is, but they like to recommend, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you're not the treatment person here. You're the judge. You can't tell us what type of treatment they need. You can tell us that they have to do something, but people are getting much better. I'll get in Summit County's exceptional. I was going to say that's very good to hear, but and, and I guess I stand corrected, but I, I, I guess I was basing my statement where I said they don't take it seriously. I was basing that statement on my experience from, what, 20 years ago when I was a police yeah, officer. Yeah. It seemed as if it was just this, like almost like a production line, just going in a circle. Arrested, mm-hmm. convicted, two weeks in rehab. Arrested, right. convicted, two weeks in rehab, just over and right. over again with the same people. <laughs> But this, again, this was 20 years ago. But we still have some of that, John. It's it's gotten better, though, because now we have a drug court, and we also have a family um, reunification recovery court. And the longer you can engage somebody, the better chance they have of staying sober because you have to heal their brain, and then you have to teach them what they need to know, and then you have to help them develop sober support before they're going to have the stability that you need. So if you can, ideally, um, women's treatment, the stats say two to five years minimum. So the importance of continuum of care is, uh, we can never shout it loud enough. It is very important that there is a, 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 a plan that is followed and the expectation is several years, not a few weeks, a few days. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we get a lot of success when we can engage them like that. Because if you think about the brain, those first 90 days are just clearing. Yeah. yeah. It, it's ve- the first 30 days. Do you remember, um, you know, in the Snoopy cartoons or even, the, I, I always think of Jack in the Box, the drive through um, taco place. And the, when the... Um, the speaker would go out and it would go like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know how like you couldn't understand what they were saying. Yeah. That's what people hear for the first 30 days in treatment. They have no clue what you're talking about. (laughs) They're like just trying to stay awake and stay alive. They they can't hear you. (laughs) And then, and then when that's the case, I would imagine that it is very important that some sort of, I don't know, an instruction or maybe some sort of therapeutic uh, system needs to be in place for the family, for that. Absolutely. Yes, because these people do not, they don't, even though some of them may be loners, there are those loner addicts that don't really engage with anyone and they have um, isolated from their families, but most people live in family systems and they live in neighborhoods and you're absolutely right. The family generally learned how to um, survive with an addict and now they need to survive differently so that they are allowing for healing, but they themselves heal because very often the person that is in active addiction has taken them through the ringer. I mean, most of these families can be really burned out. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. That is the definite um, treatment of choice is to include as many family members as possible. Um, If there's a spouse or children, because much of the therapeutic work that will happen later is the forgiveness for what happened here on both people's ends. You know, it's kind of like the addict generally, the the recovering person usually has a story and there's a lot of pain in their story. And then the family has the story. So it's a process of how do we... How do we even build trust again? Yeah. You know, you told you weren't going to use forever, and every time you did it, 
every time you came and lived with us, you stole our silverware and you did it. So why should we trust you? you yeah, know, so you know, and you can't, you can't just, and you can't forget those experiences. Those right. experiences are there, and it's, it's, of course, it's traumatic for the for the addict, for the one who's right. trying to recover. But it's also traumatic for the family members, the people who it's love them, weird. and maybe and maybe have no right. idea of the. Uh, you know, they don't understand the reasons for things. They don't understand the process and all they know is pain. Um, I, it's, it's a heavy load to carry. And you know, you doing the work you do, it, it fascinates me that you have done this for as long as you have, because it is, just thinking of how I felt as a police officer and even in some mm-hmm. of the work, some of the work I've done since then doing, uh, you know, working with, um, children and families since I've mm-hmm. been a police officer, you have those success stories yes. and good Lord, does it lift you up and you feel so good and it can carry you for a long time. But the tragedies, the failures, the people mm-hmm. who don't make it through, uh, that happens time and time and time again. How do you deal? How do you, how do you deal with that? How how have you held out for so long in this profession? Um, I do exactly what you said about holding on to the successes. One of my personal missions, just as a human being, not even a person in this profession has always been to empower people and I especially like to empower women that was like one of my goals when I always ever since I was a little child I would like want to see people move into their own power and I don't mean it in an overpowering way but you have power so why aren't we using that you know that kind of thing so that's always been one of my goals and So when I see the success, I hold on to that. And then when I'm dealing with the, sometimes the tragedies, I mean, you just have to work with people and make sure you're processing and outlets you yourself go to. I've got a great group of um, women friends and, you know, they're like the, the women that you talk to that, are always there for you and um my family's great you know so i guess like what you do is you do your your regular outlet things but you also hold on to those magic moments and then when you're sitting there feeling like nothing's ever going to get better you say oh a lot of people thought this about this person that ended up being magical so i'm just gonna wait for the magic and then if it doesn't (laughs) happen it's like okay well maybe next time it'll happen so i guess i'm kind of um a little bit more optimistic (laughs) well and and i believe in magic and i believe in miracles and i've seen them and once you've seen miracles it's like too hard not to believe in them anymore you know i am in i am in 100 percent agreement with you absolutely and i love my women i mean i just love the people i work with they are kind when they're sober they are the kindest most wonderful people on the planet they would give you the shirt off their back yeah. most of them some of them will take the shirt off your back but most of them will <laughs> give it to you. but um they also have incredible senses of humor oh absolutely yeah they're generous. They yeah. are so generous of spirit when they get recovery and they want to give it to other people. And it's, it's magical. I think that's just a beautiful, it's, it's a beautiful line of work to be in. Um, I know for a fact you are respected. We have some people that we both know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and they speak very highly of you, Maureen. No, and, thank you. And I, I want to tell you, I have, uh, I'm, I'm a better person for having spoken with you today. Well, I'm a better person for having spoken with you as well, John. Well, how about that? (laughs) Yeah, it's a miracle. There we go. There's the miracles you're talking about. Listen, I I would love I would love to continue talking with you, but I as I told you before we started, I'm having some issues with my memory card and it's just about filled up. Because I've been sitting out in the sun to get a good um a good uh Wi-Fi pickup, and it's getting hot out here in <laughs> North 
So I, uh, I tell you, there is no, there is no sun like that rural Ohio sun that I miss so much. <laughs> this is 90 degrees, uh, Jack. Wow. Yep. Wow. Okay. Well, well listen, thank you. I just want to thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for having this conversation. I think this conversation is going, I know this conversation is going to help somebody out there. I know I this is going to, so. yeah, I think it's going to benefit the people who listen to it. Absolutely. Um, okay. Maureen Keating, thank you so much for taking the time. Not a problem. It's my pleasure. Thanks, okay. John. Bye, everybody. Bye. I'm coming home. Home. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Yes, I am, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Lord, I'm coming home.